0: Hello everyone, welcome to Sabbath School Gems, where each week we showcase key concepts from this week's Seventh-day Adventist Sabbath School lesson. Well, hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Sabbath School Gems. This is lesson three for the third quarter of 2022, and it's titled The Bird Cage," and it's from the quarterly In the Crucible with Christ. Now, the reason why this lesson is titled The bird cage is because it starts out with the concept of covering the bird cage to teach the bird song. So the idea is that the bird learns the songs when its cage is covered in the darkness. It can learn songs, really elaborate songs, and it can learn them better than if the cage is not covered. And this idea is suggesting that God allows certain trials so that we can learn. And not, not just that he allows it, but actually leads us into them, because the bird's owner is the one who covers the cage. And so the bird owner is wants to teach the bird songs, so it covers the cage, and then teaches the bird songs, and the bird learns songs, or whatever it is that's trying to teach the bird. Now, I want to challenge this idea right off the bat, because I don't believe that God leads us into trials. And I know it's very common for Christians to think this it's a very common thought well you know he he knew we needed that or can only he only gives us what we can handle and there's always a reason and we like to say that we like to think that some bad thing happened and we like to say well there's a reason for that god has a reason but follow that to the logical conclusion that means every bad that's going on god is determining whether or not he has a reason for it or whether we can handle it or not. You know, when we say, well, no one's tempted more than they can stand, then it makes it seem like God's there for every tragedy and bad thing. He's saying, well, can I allow this to happen to this person? Can it happen to that person? And I just don't think God is in the business of that at all. He is not the origin of bad. He is not the origin of trials and sorrows and hardships. He wants us to be happy I don't think he's there permitting or not permitting evil to happen. And the Bible supports this. There was a a text that was brought up later on in the week in this lesson, and that's James 1, and I'll just read 13 to 18. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed then when desire has conceived it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown brings forth death so do not be deceived my beloved brethren every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning and i agree with this text it's saying god is not the one that's tempting us to evil he gives us good gifts every perfect gift See, God is so good at turning bad circumstances into good that sometimes we think, well, he caused those bad because he knew all this good was going to come out. But it's not a good way to look at God. He's not there to determine what he's going to lead us into so he can teach us. And we will see this. I'll let you make up your own mind as we go through this week's lesson because there's a, a lot of different situations that are brought up And we can ask ourselves, did God originate this, or is he just making something good out of something that's bad? In other words, is he covering the birdcage, or is he just teaching us the song and uncovering the birdcage? Or maybe he's doing all three. But let's go through each one of these, and we can ask ourselves that question. And one way that I like to think about things that helps me to decide, did God do this? Because a lot of things we attribute to God is I like to see, is there another reason? Is there an obvious reason? Because if there's an obvious reason, we don't have to go into this world of, well, God knew there was some purpose, so he did it. So let me just give you an example. A young man, 29 years old, in the prime of his life, gets in a car accident and gets paralyzed from the neck down. And he he lives a good life. He blesses a lot of people. And because of that injury, he's able to reach a lot of people and be a good example to people who have less severe health challenges. And so he's able to witness to them. And he's able to have a lot of influence and bless a lot of people. And so you say, well, see, God knew. God knew that he was going to be the right one. So he let him have the injury. No, we silly like to say that because we think that, well, then it couldn't happen to us. But the reality is it can happen to any of us. So let's look at the real reason why he had the injury because a young man about his same age was driving maybe too fast and didn't see him stop to make a left turn. And so he plows right into him. By the time he notices it's too late, he's going 50 miles an hour, plows into him and knocks his car into oncoming traffic. And then he gets hit by an oncoming car. And that's when he sustains his injury. Then physics happens after that. So now we know the real cause. The real cause was because this guy got distracted and he just happened to get distracted at the wrong time and he happened to hit him in the wrong place and spin him into traffic. And so all this happens, that's the real reason. So anytime there's a real reason, we don't have to go to, well, God caused that because he knew he could handle it and you know all this kind of stuff. So let's just look at each of these situations that the lesson brings out and let's ask the question, is God leading them into these troubles, or is he just getting them out of them and making good things out of them? So we're gonna start out with Sunday's lesson is the Red Sea incident. Here they're coming out of Egypt and trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. So let's read in Exodus 14:2 through five. It says, speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi-Heiroth between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal-Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land, the wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this that we have let Israel go from serving us? And then you know what happens is Pharaoh sends his army after them, and they get trapped between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea, and God splits the Red Sea, and we know that story. So is God actively orchestrating all this? I mean, it does say he led them, he told them to go out to that place to camp, and then he told Moses, he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and then he's going to pursue them. So is God orchestrating this whole event? Well, let's look at what's actually going on. So when the Bible says, "I will harden Pharaoh's heart," first of all, I'm not even sh- so sure that's a correct translation because, in the Hebrew, if you look at the Strong's and, and Hebrew words, there's a self in there. But it really looks to me like it's reading "harden Pharaoh self heart." Later on, this is in Exodus 14:17. It says, "And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians." and they shall follow them, and I will get me honor upon Pharaoh, and upon all his hosts, and upon his chariots. So that text, it does have an I, and the Lord is speaking. So it's easy to say, okay, well, because it's saying I there, but that I is in verse 17, 14, 17, it's really saying, as for me, and then it goes on to say the same thing, that hardened Pharaoh himself heart, it's not clear to me that the Lord is saying, I am the I'm going to do something. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. It looks more like Pharaoh's heart himself is going to be hardened. And then the Lord is telling Moses what's going to happen. So he's telling him, this is what's going to happen. This is how it's all going to play out. Pharaoh's heart's going to be hardened and he's going to come after you because God knows what's going to happen. And he's trying to warn Moses and he's trying to say, don't be afraid. On verse 14, Exodus 14, 14, it says, the Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. And that holds your peace. It's not exactly the same as the be still in Psalm 46, 10 and 11, where it says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. That Psalm is basically saying the same thing. Be still and know that I am God. I'm going to be exalted. Just like it's saying here. I'm going to do everything and I'm going to be exalted among all the Egyptians. It's saying the same thing, but the Hebrew words there is a little bit different. When it says you shall hold your peace in Exodus 14, 14, it's talking about just being silent or being out of the picture. In other words, the Lord is telling Moses, I'm going to fight this battle for you. I'm going to take care of the Egyptians. You are not going to do anything. You don't have to worry about fighting against them or doing anything. You're just going to be peaceful. You're just going to be silent. And I'm going to take care of it. You just listen to me, follow my directions, and I'm going to take care of everything. So that's kind of what he's telling Moses. So let's look at this. Did he lead them out? Yes, he told them to camp there. But is there a real reason behind this? Is there a reason? Yeah, there's a reason. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And Pharaoh was coming after them. They wouldn't be trapped there. They were just going in that direction. They could have turned, they could have gone around the Red Sea or whatever. They were only trapped there because Pharaoh sent out his army. And they said, Well, why did Pharaoh send out his army? Did God harden his heart or did God give him every opportunity to see that he was fighting against God? He was giving Pharaoh all these signs and all those miracles that were being done and all the frogs and the flies and all this stuff so that he could show Pharaoh, Look, you're getting in over your head, buddy. I mean, even. Pharaoh's people that were around him, his servants and, and all the people that were in the court, they were, they were getting freaked out. They were saying, oh no, this, this is the real thing. They were trying to convince Pharaoh, this is really God. This is not us, this is not magicians or anything. This is a real thing, Pharaoh. And even they were fearful and the people were fearful, but Pharaoh, he just kept getting hardened because he didn't want anything to be above his power. God gave him every opportunity not to pursue them, but he's the one. His heart self was hardened, and he came after them. So when we have asked the question, did God lead them out there so that he could do the miracle and rescue them by the Red Sea? I think it was happening because of Pharaoh, not because of God. God was doing everything to stop him. So that's just one incident. I'll let you Decide how you want to look at this. Now let's get to the second one that the lesson brings out on Monday, and that's the bitter waters. And I'm going to read that in Exodus 15, 22 to 27. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and then they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah because they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses saying, what shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statue and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them. And then said, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Now, did God intentionally lead them out to the bitter waters? Here they are, three days journey from their last water source. They're traveling in the wilderness and they can't find water and they finally find water and they think, okay, we're gonna camp here. And then they find out that the water's not drinkable. So did God intentionally lead them to the bitter waters or did he just help them out of a bad situation? They came out and he told them eventually, I mean, he showed Moses what to do. He showed Moses how to make the water so that they were drinkable. And all they really needed to do was turn to God like Moses did and just say, What do we need to do here? We're we're thirsty, we need water, and this water's not drinkable. And God would have showed him, like he showed Moses, what to do. Yes, God used this to show them, to say, you don't have to worry about getting diseases or drinking this bad water or anything, because if you follow me and if you listen to me and you do my statutes and my commandments, You're not going to have any of the diseases that the Egyptians had. You're not going to have to worry about getting ill from drinking this water and things like that. If you listen to me, follow my commandments, I'll teach you. I'll tell you what to do to make the water sweet or where to find the water. The question is, did God lead them intentionally to that bitter water or did they just encounter it? They're going out in the wilderness. There's not going to be dug wells every mile or so that they can get fresh water. So I'll let you decide if God intentionally led them there or if it just happened and God used the situation to, to teach them to listen to him and he'll show them how to even make bitter waters so they're drinkable. Okay, now we get to the no waters. That's in Exodus 17. I'll just read one through seven. It says, and all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and captain. Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your rod, which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Okay, so now we're going to ask the question, did he lead them to a place where there was no water? Well, obviously there was water there. Moses struck the rock and it came out. And if you've been backpacking, there's sometimes there's underwater springs or there's different ways to find water. You can look for different signs about where there might be water underground. It might be some more vegetation or the vegetation is a little bit greener in spots. And so there's ways to locate water, even some of these under springs of water and things. But look at the state of the people. They were thirsting. They were complaining. They were just, why did you bring us out of Egypt? They were still lamenting what they had or what they were going to have to go through. And they weren't in a good state of mind. When you're not in a good state of mind, you can't think straight. And you certainly can't listen to God. And they weren't listening to God. And they weren't going to God and asking him to help them find the water. There was water there. There was water there because Moses struck the rock and brought the water so so it really looks like they didn't trust God and they weren't listening they were in a fit they were in a rage they were even going to kill Moses and God took this opportunity to show them that he's going to provide for him them, but that they're being stubborn that they're being that they're, they could have just come and asked, but they didn't they were ready to kill Moses over it so Did God give them this challenge, or did they bring it upon themselves? Was God really trying to connect with them in the wilderness without all the distractions and clamor of Egypt? You know, when you go backpacking, you see the animals can find water. They're all, the the animals in nature, they don't don't stress. They're not stressed and worried and having their little pity party and having a tantrum. They are actually just going about and trusting God's going to show them where that food is or that water for the day. And when you're backpacking out in the backcountry, you kind of are like that. You're just, you know, listening and just being guided by things. And and you're not trying to plan everything out and, and have everything work exactly to plan. You just, you go and you make decisions along the way. And that's what God was trying to do with them. He was trying to lead them and have them listen to him and trust him. And of course, we see that it wasn't working out too well. Okay, let's go on to the next one, and this is a controversy in the desert. This is Tuesday's lesson, and I'm going to read Luke 4, 1 through 13. It says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned to Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for forty days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterwards, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on the high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now the lesson study says that it looks like the Holy Spirit is leading into the crucible. But it also mentions that God doesn't tempt, mentions that verse that we read in James. But then it goes back and says, well, the Holy Spirit can lead us to times of testing that involve being exposed to Satan's fierce temptations. That's a quote directly out of the lesson study. But how can it be that the Holy Spirit's leading, but then God doesn't lead us, but now it's leading into times of testing? So this is really confusing. The question is, did God or the Holy Spirit lead Jesus into this time of testing, or was he actually delivering Jesus from it? Was Satan tempting Jesus at a time of vulnerability? Yes, if he's hungry, it would be reasonable that Satan would tempt him with bread, because he's hungry. But fasting also draws us closer to God and helps strengthen us and helps us be strengthened spiritually. So maybe God was preparing Jesus for this hour of temptation, By having him fast and coming close to him so that he'd be strong enough for all these temptations, because it sounds like Satan was throwing everything at him. And maybe God was strengthening him during this time of fasting. Just like God knew that Pharaoh was building up to a climax to pursue the children of Israel with his army, maybe he's helping us. Now, the lesson brings out Desire of Ages, pages 126 to 129. And if you Listen to Ellen White's verbiage. She, go, she is pretty much going by the God is leading us. Um, I'll just read that. It says, often when placed in a trying situation, we doubt that the Spirit of God has been leading us, but it was the Spirit's leading that brought Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. When God brings us into trial, he has a purpose to accomplish for our good. Now let's just take this when, when she says, but it was the Spirit's leading that brought Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted it can, be, it can be looked at both ways. It could be looked at, well, the spirit is leading him in there. This is going to be his final exam, you know. The spirit's leading him in there to get, get his final exam over with. Or you can say he led them in there so that he could be strengthened for this moment of being tempted. And when he brings us into trial, he has a purpose to accomplish. It makes it sound like God is bringing us into this trial. But that's the, that's the very wording that's the question here. Is God really bringing us into this trial or is Satan behind the trial? Let's look at it. Why was Jesus getting tempted? Satan was tempting him. God wasn't tempting him. It's because Satan decided he's going to tempt him and he's going to throw all these stiff temptations at him. So I think we should really go by the text in James that says that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. And we need to be careful about making the distinction. Did God bring us into trial? Or are we just brought into t- trial by the circumstances of evil working on us? And God is the one who's trying to lead us out. Now, Wednesday's lesson is titled Enduring Legacy. And I'm not really sure why this is in there. But it, it's another example that we've seen in last week's lesson. And we've seen it in Hebrews. When we study that as an example of encouragement, encouragement to the Christian churches in those days and to us here, that we should be careful to look at these trials and get discouraged, that we should look at them as times to grow our faith. I'm going to read first Peter one, six and seven. It says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials But the genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold. Think about it. It's like saying that faith is more precious than gold. I mean, gold, even gold can be vaporized if you get it hot enough. I think it's, I don't know, 5,000 Fahrenheit or something to vaporize gold, to boil it off, I guess. But genuineness of faith, that's stronger than this. And why is it enduring these trials? What is it ending in? After it endures all these trials, it ends in the salvation of your souls. And so really, this is saying, don't look at these trials and get discouraged, but rejoice in them, because at the end, your faith is going to be rewarded with salvation. But really, how do we make our faith stronger? Aside from trials, trials are not the only thing. How do we actually grow our faith? We just read a few more verses from that. So in First Peter 1, 13 through 16, it tells us how it says, therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lusts as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. So this is the way that we really grow our faith by obe- being obedient children, not going after our former lusts and all these things, that we come out in the light and that we strive after God and seek Him with all our heart and we seek to be holy people. We gird up our loins and be sober and rest our hope on God. So that's this is the encouragement that's talking about how to grow our faith, that faith that's more precious than gold and that is what is gonna get us through these trials. And we're gonna have trials because we're on this earth and Satan is after us and there is an adversary and that's the real reason behind these trials. So Thursday's lesson is titled Trial by Fire and it's just got a smattering of texts, how you would help somebody to grow in their faith or, or get stronger in this. And it just has a bunch of texts, but I like the Proverbs it reads the whole chapter there, and I'm, j- I'm not going to read all the, the text, and I'm not going to read all the text that the lesson study brings out. But, but if we look in Proverbs 3, it says, My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace it will add to you. And, and that's, that's it right in a nutshell, right there, those two verses. Do not forget my Torah, and let your heart keep my mitzvah, So don't forget my law and let your heart keep my commandments. That's part of that covenant relationship. That's part of the covenant for length of days and long life, because not because God says, so you have to follow my law. Like this is a, this is like a written document that you have to follow or you'll get punished. No, it's because these are instructions from God to give us long life and peace. And then In verse 3, it goes on to say, let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. So mercy and truth, bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And then in verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And verse 9, honor the Lord with your possessions. Verse 11, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. So be correctable. If you do something wrong, don't just harden yourself and, and determine that, you know, try to hide it, but but be, be humble and and take the chastening. Learn. Be someone who learns from, from mistakes. And then going down to verse 27, don't withhold good from those for whom it's due. Do not strive with a man without cause. That's verse 30. Do not envy the oppressor. These are things of how someone who is following God would act and they can also help us know how to act and to get closer to God to follow him but really by growing our faith it's by exercising our faith by actually following God and seeking after good things and doing what he what we know is right and in Jeremiah 29:12 and 13 it says Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And this is the same verbiage as in Deuteronomy. They're talking about the end of time when God's people are going to be gathered. They're going to be ones who are seeking after God with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their might. So let's just end with the question, do we have a decision? Does God lead them into these trials, or is he the one that taught them the song? In a times of darkness, did he, does he lead us into the darkness so that he can teach us a song, or does he just use that opportunity to teach us a song so that he can eventually uncover the cage and we can sing? I think it's the latter. I don't think he's leading us into trials. I think there's enough trouble for the day. There's enough trials here. God is not one who's wants to see us suffer. He's trying to do everything he can so that we can be happy. But he knows that that true happiness is only going to come when we trust him and we obey him. And I, I like the end quote that Ellen White writes. It says, we will see someday how many of these burdens he's borne for us. And how many he would be willing to bear if we would have brought them to him. And I think that's more the situation. That he's not bringing us into these burdens. He's actually relieving us from some that we don't even see. And he would be willing to do so much more for us if we would just come to him. So I think that's the biggest takeaway that I get from reading all these situations. Is they wouldn't have been in these situations if they had listened to him. So I think we should look at it, not that everything has a purpose, like God is writing some script ahead of time and deciding what evil is going to befall each of us or how he can, what he can do to us to make us stronger, but instead that we're in this planet, we're vulnerable here, and that he's our strength and he's our hope and he's our life. And so I hope that's the takeaway, that he is not the one that is covering the birdcage. He's the one that's teaching us the song in the times of darkness and that he is giving us the hope that he is going to uncover that birdcage. And he's going to let us go. He's going to take us out so we can fly around and he's going to watch over us. I hope you enjoyed this lesson and we'll talk again next week. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Sabbath School Gems. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word to others. Comments and questions can be sent to us at SabbathSchoolGems at gmail.com. Bye for now.